Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode of Fly on the Wall, I am joined by David Sleeth, the CEO of Seagrow, a property investment and development company focusing on edge-of-town flexible business space in the UK and continental Europe. We discuss how a rise in e-commerce, logistics, and food delivery stemming from stay-at-home measures has led to explosive growth in the industrial real estate sector. We also make predictions for how an increasing desire for omnichannel brands and on-demand service solutions will impact the sector. Enjoy the conversation. Well, David, thank you so much for joining. Are you uh, coming in from London today? No, I have not been in London for uh, three months, Brendan. Um, I'm in, in Warwickshire in the middle of the, the country. Actually, it's kind of you know, the, the logistic hotspot. Most of the, most of the logistics um, developers and investors um, either started out life or have a big presence in, in the UK Midlands. And so I'm just on the southern edge of that. Well, I'm, I'm out here in, in Utah, and uh, we have unfortunately no snow, which I think relates to climate change, which we'll talk about Seagro's ambitious plans around sustainability in, in a bit. But maybe to start, can you just give people your background and maybe a little bit of context on Seagro, what Seagro is, its presence in Europe? Sure, yeah. Um, so I'm an accountant by training. I'm a relative newcomer to real estate. I spent 17 years training with and then became a partner in, in Arthur Anderson. Um, and then I sort of had a, had a second career going into, uh, into the business world. I spent five years as the CFO at a, uh, an engineering company, a publicistic company making uh, automobile parts. And then sort of stumbled into real estate when I, uh, when I met my predecessor, Ian Cool, who, uh, who, who was then chief executive at, at uh, what was probably thought of as quite a sleepy old property company, Slough Estates, as it was, was called then. And I joined the business uh, in, in 05 and then um, became chief executive in, in 2011, launched a, a new strategy on, on the market later that year. And um, had the great privilege uh, in May last year of celebrating the 100-year anniversary of what is now called Seagrow, um, which has always had uh, industrial and, and uh, logistics space at its core, but got involved in all kinds of other interesting things. But you know, more recently, in our focus in the last in the last decade has been absolutely on warehousing logistics, um, trying to uh, you know position ourselves to benefit from many of the trends that we've seen playing out, whether it's e-commerce or, or um, supply chain modernization that's been happening across, across Europe. So today we, uh, we're in eight markets. We're in, in all the main uh, Western European markets. The UK still represents more than half our capital, uh, but we've got a you know, very large portfolio. We've got about 14 billion of, uh, of assets pounds across Europe. And, um, and, and we're focused on what a lot of people would recognize as the, the large um, big boxes, warehouses, the large fulfillment centers that, that most investors in the sector and followers of the sectors would be aware of. But we're a little different to most in, in that two thirds of our capital base is actually in urban markets. So 
because of our long heritage in, in industrial, we were we, we had a much more urban portfolio, and of course that's been a really interesting um, area to to be operating in. The, the big warehouses have been, it's been a phenomenal growth story, particularly as e-commerce has taken off in recent years. But the uh, the area that that many people are most excited about, and we're certainly very excited about, is urban, <clears throat> because in urban you have this uh, this wonderful combination of population growth, which drives demand for for goods and services to be delivered, and that's supercharged because of uh, the impacts of things like e-commerce growth. But also you have um, shrinking land availability to, to meet the, the demand for space um, because, of, because you know, the houses and the, and the apartments are being built on old industrial land. So, you, so in, in the biggest, most congested, complex cities, you've got this double whammy, which makes it a very interesting place to, uh, to operate in. And I'm curious, you know, I've talked to GLP, obviously, about kind of their experience during COVID. And I talked to Blackstone about, obviously, their portfolio. And it's obvious that kind of the increased demand for e-commerce has just put this secular tailwind behind the demand for logistics real estate. And, you know, I think everyone understands that intellectually. But, like, can you concretely frame that? Like, how much are we seeing demand grow for industrial real estate? Because, we are straining the kind of supply chain and the the pipeline of all this industrial real estate and all the last mile logistics and all the kind of production capacity that's required to get goods to consumers now in their homes, right? With these stay at home orders. Yeah, the the um, the pan- pandemic has been. Um, I mean, you know, it, it's had terrible consequences for many industries and many companies, and and at an individual level, terrible. But for most of us operating in the warehousing logistics space it's been a real um, boost to occupational demand. But I'd kind of stand back a sort of a, a step even from that. And I'd say, you know, this period of, you know, most of 2020 and coming to 21, um, I would, you know, we, which is, you know, clearly being influenced massively by the pandemic has been the year when probably the entire world woke up to the importance of having first class resilient, uh, you know, uh, efficient um, supply chains. Where, you know, so whether it's whether it's for uh, traditional retailing or online retailing, or you know, if you think back to the early part of the pandemic, when I don't know what it was like in the states, but you know, supermarket shelves were running out because people were stockpiling and panicking about whether the supply chains would get there. Uh, in the UK, we've also had Brexit, so you know, people worried about things getting gummed up at borders because of um, be- because of trade deals not being done, and that slowing down deliveries of, uh, of just in time, or whether it's uh, PPE equipment uh, that they were trying to get to the front line, or testing kits, or now vaccines. Suddenly, the whole world this this year, I'd say, is the whole is the year when the whole world has woken up to the fact that having resilient supply chains. Um, matter more than ever before and of course we've been saying that for for a long time that, that you know that's why we've been investing in this space is, is we could just see the need to modernize and to give you know businesses and consumers um, the ability to be served better by our customers you can only do that if you've got the right real estate to to support that so it's been been a really interesting time and the pandemic has has you know has just emphasized all that and as you say um you know, for a large part of the, the, the last nine months, um, buying things over the internet has been the only way of, of getting things for, for a large proportion of the population. 
So we've seen the acceleration of growth, you know, real spike in internet penetration uh, for for, uh, many of our customers. And um, it wasn't always the most profitable, I think, for them, because a lot of them were not set up with the, the you know, the efficiency and the, the means to, to meet those customer orders, particularly on food and grocery. Um, but the volumes have been there. And of course, what's happened is a lot of consumers have been introduced to online retailing for the first time. Um, for those who have been doing it for a while, it's, it's just enabled us to carry on living relatively normal lives. But a lot of people have been introduced to it for the first time. They've liked it. They've got... They've got used to the convenience. They found that they can get an extraordinary range of products that you can't normally get from a physical store. And of course, it's going to stick. And so what we're seeing in our customer base is a lot of short term, but particularly now, you know, long term um, you know, investment plans to try and capture that, that spike in volume, to turn it into a permanent feature but also to do it in a more profitable way, because you can, you know, we, we all know doing online and omnichannel is a very expensive business. And um, you can only do it efficiently if, if you've got the right real estate in place to, to support that activity. So, you know, yes, the, the e-commerce players have done very well. And actually, the other sector that's done extraordinarily well is big data centers. So, you know, a, a large chunk of our portfolio getting on for about 7% is actually data centers. And because, you know, those, those people have been having a fantastic time. But we've also had at the other end of the spectrum, some businesses supporting the hospitality sector or the entertainment sector, you know, people that are supplying hotels, restaurants, theatres, um, other, other outlets in, in cities like London, they, they've had a pretty tough time. So we've had to adapt and work with and support some of those hard hit sectors. But, um, you know, touching wood, we've had a pretty good experience. Uh, I think we, um, we collected 98% of all our rents due for 2020. So, um, you know, so far, so good. But, you know, on the whole, it's been it's been a great period because because the pandemic has just pushed through the acceleration of some of those trends that have been been benefiting our, our business for some time. And David, you mentioned that, you know, a significant portion of your portfolio is, is urban. And one of the trends that, you know, we had seen before the pandemic, but to some extent, the pandemic has accelerated is demand for just on-demand delivery, right? So these kind of like, uh, services, whether it be food or kind of last mile grocery delivery, where it kind of blurs the line between traditional retail real estate and industrial real estate. To what extent has the, the pandemic kind of further conflated the distinction between those two asset classes, which I think were previously seen as distinct? Yeah, I, I don't know that um, I go as far as to say there's a there's a blurring. I think what there is, is wherever you've got large numbers of people in, in, in big urban populations, um, the, re- the really hard thing about online and, and omni-channel retailing is how you get individual products, parcels, packages to people's front doors. And if you think of you know, traditional retail outlets, a, a large distribution center would be sending product on pallets to, to a supermarket for unpacking and putting on the shelves. Now they have to send individual products and that's a very expensive, complex, difficult thing to do. So the big challenge, as I see it in internet retailing or, or e-commerce, if you like, is that last mile piece. And, and how do you deal with the last mile in and around um, bigger urban population centers? And, and it's particularly challenging because as I said earlier, you've got, you've got you know, increasing numbers of people living there. You've got more more homes being built. 
um, and and those people need need more goods and services, and yet the obvious places to supply from are kind of disappearing. You know, the great thing about physical retail is you can go and buy something today, and pick it up, and you can have it within two hours. So the the, the best omni-channel and online offerings need to be able to compete with that, and the only way you can compete with that is if you've got that last mile delivery space. And and I say that's where there's most innovation and most um, interesting things happening as to how space is being used. So, you know, we're, we're trying to own uh, land and develop buildings in and around, you know, all the major hotspots of, of um, the large complex uh, urban population centers in, in Europe. And, um, and, and, you know, at the margin, we're seeing some traditional retail space is, is, is being repurposed and reused for, uh, industrial distribution. I think some of the large shopping mall owners and operators are thinking about how they can better use some of their space. We've got other customers that are looking at how they can use underground space. And we've got a particular um, asset in Paris, which has got, it's a former SNCF rail uh, hub right in the middle of Paris that we've got um, ground floor and underground space and there's residential above. So, we, you know, there's, there's innovative thinking in terms of how you can uh, intensify the usage. We've got car parking space being used, um, you know, multi-storey city centre car park space being used by one of our customers. So there's all kinds of innovation in terms of how you can create more space close, to, we'd say close to the chimney pots, close to the close to the final consumer, because that is the most difficult, most complex um, element of the journey. And that's where most innovation is is needed. And when you think about that, like getting as close to the end customer from a last mile perspective, you know, that touches on a lot of what we see around automation of warehouses and also just new delivery form factors, right? Like drone-based delivery. I guess, what do you think the future holds around what people envision as like fully automated warehouses? And what do you think the future of drone-based delivery is? And what do you think are some of the barriers to entry, right? For that actually to be adopted and economically viable for, you know, any company like Amazon to truly, to truly use and deploy in the field? Yeah, well, I'm not going to try and tell you I know exactly what Amazon are doing because they're, they're, they'll be light years ahead in terms of their own research and, and development activities here. Um, there are a couple of different things there, actually, Brendan. One of them, one is around warehouse automation. I mean, you know, highly automated warehouses are already here. You know, we're building loads of them uh, around Europe. Uh, what you know, one of the big trends associated with uh, the growth of e-commerce e has been to consolidate a lot more inventory in real mega facilities. We used, we used to call a, a, a big box warehouse over 100,000 square feet. Now it's over a million square feet, and we're regularly doing them of, at one and a quarter or one and a half million square feet. And these are highly automated facilities. It's not necessarily that the customer is trying to um, avoid using labor is that they need to supplement labor and they need a more efficient process. In fact, labor shortages are, are, are a challenge in most, most markets nowadays. If you, if you ask an Amazon where will they locate one of their big fulfillment centers, sure, they want to be close to their customers, but they also want to be close to a labor pool. And yet those facilities they're, they're creating are highly automated. And it's because of efficiency and, and you know, how, how best can you pick individual items and get and get them packed and, and available for, for distribution as fast as possible. You know, we're increasingly seeing 
very highly automated facilities. Um, that requires uh, quite often a different building configuration, usually greater height. So typically we'll see you know, two or three story buildings uh, with, with, with lots of technology on each floor, um, a larger footprint and, and actually finding sites where you can, you can build the, foot, the footprint of a million square feet is, is increasingly challenging in many of our markets. And what we're having to do is invest significantly in power supply. So we, 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 we will invest in infrastructure to a much greater degree nowadays than we would have done even five years ago, because we know that the customers are going to get, that are going to go in there will want to run highly automated facilities and they're going to need a lot of power to, to do that. So that's on one side, you know, automation is here. It's happening in, in, in large scale. It creates some challenges, but it also means as an investor, your, uh, your customer is going to put a lot of investment inside the building. Typically, the technology that goes inside the building will be a multiple of the cost of the building itself. So it tends to mean they want long leases, they want to stick around, and they're going to invest in that facility. On the, 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 the interesting area of, you know, last mile delivery and drones, um, I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic on that because the, uh, I can, at least I can see the challenges associated with it. Apart from the, um, the, the fear factor of seeing thousands of drones in the London skyline all uh, competing for airspace, it's the, you know, the, the physical challenges of, you know, you, you know they, 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 they have limited distances, they have limited ability to carry heavy objects. So I can see them in certain specialist remote locations in particular or, or time critical deliveries. You know, maybe, maybe you're, um, you're, you're transplanting an organ from one side of one London hospital to another hospital. I could, see, I could see some particular specialist uses for them, but I see some physical constraints in, in, in them being used. So I think there are all kinds of regulatory and physical constraints to see that happening. We've got more interesting things to do with some of our building roofs than prepare them as uh, drone delivery takeoff and landing sites. We'll come on and talk about that probably a little bit later. And, and what's so interesting is like, you, I, I hark back to the conversation that we had in, in London, I guess now two and a half years ago, where, you know, I kind of presented obviously to Seagro and I was like, look, I think for the real estate industry, technology and innovation is becoming increasingly important, right? So the ability to access these new technologies and to kind of have a front row ticket to the innovation economy is becoming not just like a nice to have, it's becoming core, it's existential to what being a real estate owner is. I guess when you look at that from Seagro's perspective, how much has the imperative to adopt and get access to new technologies changed just over the last five years? Well, I mean, it, it, yeah, definitely. When we first met Brendan, uh, we we were really only just starting to think about it, and you know, and I think I think some of my colleagues have been to some prop tech conferences, and you know, we we were just starting to think about it. And you really, um, uh, you know, it sold our scene. You you said you'll give us a front row seat as to what's happening, and you know, we just felt there there was going to be a huge amount of change and a huge opportunity for for technology in the property space. We absolutely had to be informing ourselves and educating ourselves and thinking about how some of those emerging te technologies could could benefit our business. And um, you know, we, we you know, those of us in, in kind of leadership position in the business. You know, as I said earlier, we've been around for a hundred years now. And I think the one thing that um, you know, who knows where we'll all be in? Well, I'm pretty sure we're in, I know where I'll be in hundred years' time. But but you know, the the, uh, the the great responsibility as a student of the business 
is to make sure you 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 know you create a business that is there for the long run and can and can succeed. And so not to be thinking about how technology is going to be either a threat or an opportunity for our business would frankly be a dereliction of duty. So for us, um, when you came with your with your initial um, pitch, it was it was a pretty easy sell because we knew something was about to happen and something big was about to happen. So I mean, I think through the conversations we've had and and, and other work we've been doing, we've you know we've we've learned a lot. Uh, we started to do um, some interesting things in the in the last um, probably. 18 months to two years, we've we've got a, a, a team that's got a specific responsibility for uh, developing some 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 innovation and some technologies, and we've got some pretty exciting things happening, which um, you know, I think will will uh, will stand us in good stead in the years to come. But it, you know, it's, just, it's it's changing fast, right? So, and it's been inspiring, right, to just see like a hundred year old company. There's this there's this new opportunity to right to view what's happening in technology innovation defensively and offensively, right? And so some of these big questions we've been talking about, like what is the future of the supply chain and then therefore industrial real estate touches intimately on some of these questions around consumer behavior changes, but automation changes, transportation changes, the bulk of which are are driven by technology. And that kind of brings me to one of the things I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, Seagro announced it was taking this science-based approach to sustainability. And I think it was a very forward posture for any real estate company, but certainly a real estate company in the industrial space. Can you just talk more about where that came from and, and why that initiative is, is so important to you? I think every company, particularly in the public space, has been, you know, having to think about, about its, uh, its carbon footprint and what it's doing to, you know, to contribute to, the, to tackling climate change. And so we came out with a, a plan in 2019, which we called Zero 2025. Um, and that was, that was really about putting us on a, a route march to make sure that we, we were gonna be at least in line with what corporates needed to deliver to be uh, you know, adhering to the Paris uh, Accord. So net carbon neutral by 2050. I have to say, you know, only um, 18 months or two years on from that, um, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that 2050 isn't early enough. And, we, and we're, doing, we're doing some more work now, actually, which I expect will be shared more publicly in the, in the coming months. And you'll see us committing to, to something even more, more ambitious. But at its core, um, 2020, Seagra 2025 really is around trying to, you know, fundamentally around carbon footprint and thinking about uh, what we can do to challenge ourselves to, to uh, make, make a positive impact. You, and you'll be aware that in, 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 in real estate space, there are, you know, there are you know, two major areas where carbon is, is, uh, you know, is generated. One is, one is in the development program. So if you construct buildings, you're almost certainly going to generate carbon. So we're thinking about how we can use technologies like BIM, building information modeling, how we can use different materials, how we can uh, recycle more, uh, more, more materials in it if, we're, if we're redeveloping a building. Um, and we've set ourselves a target of, of uh, reducing the carbon, the embodied carbon through the development process by 20% by 2025, which will get us on that trajectory. You know, it's impossible to eliminate totally. And so um, there will undoubtedly be when we when in order to get to net zero carbon on development, we will need to invest in some offsets. But we're not very keen on just 
writing out a big check for somebody to go and plant trees in some mythical forest in in Brazil or somewhere else. We actually want to do something a bit more relevant and creative and, and something a bit more local. So we're thinking hard about offsetting. And then the other big area is in terms of operational carbon. That's, you know, that's the carbon that's generated through the use of our buildings. And that's a, that's a big chunk of carbon. And of course, a lot of it we're not directly responsible for uh, because it's our customers. But what we can do is we can we can make our, we, we can equip our buildings and this place of the technology piece. You know, we can use some technologies to equip our buildings to help our customers use more effectively. So smart buildings, you know, with, with, with sensors so they can, they can track and monitor um, air quality, they can track and monitor heat loss and energy loss. And we've been doing some pilot studies in that area in the, in the last few months with, a, with our customers who've actually um, really embraced it and, and uh, very keen to see that rolled out more extensively, which is what we're planning for 2021. Um, we can also engage with our customers to um, work with them to, to source clean and green energy frankly and you know most of them because they have responsibility for the building they source their own energy but but we know most of them have their own uh, targets we can work with them and we want to get them all onto a green tariff and then the third thing we can do in the operational carbon piece which is really interesting I think is around solar so I mentioned earlier about you know a more effective use of roofs on our buildings I mean we've got a huge expanse of roof space and uh, there are all kinds of reasons why it's not extensively used today, but we think there's a big opportunity to tap into that space and install solar capacity on those roofs, which will be a real win-win for us and our customers. And we're thinking very hard about how we can um, roll that out and re really make a positive impact on the carbon that is, um, or the energy that's, that's used in our buildings and, and doing it in a, you know, in a, in a clean way. So it's some really interesting stuff happening there. And then, you know, um, over and above that, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of other things we're now doing in, in the sort of in the digital and technology space that are broader than just sustainability. We're starting to use um, data more to think around uh, how and you know how and where our customers need to be located. We're looking at um, you know congestion data, travel, you know, traveling distances. I mean, we we operate. It kind of um, alluded to it earlier. We operate, we like the cities that are the biggest, the most complex, the most difficult to navigate, because we know that there's a premium, therefore, of, of finding the right space in those cities for our customers. So if we can use data to work out where are the best spots, we can use data to also map where are our existing customers in and around major conurbations. We think we've got something quite powerful that uh, we can then use to, uh, to help serve them, them better. It's been a very, very interesting journey over, over the last uh, couple of years as we've got to work with, with Fifth Wall and, and think about how we can become a properly, you know, digitally savvy, digitally enabled business. But, you know, it's early days. We've got a long way to go, but it's, it's a very exciting space for us. But it's, it's inspiring, right? When you think about um, a, an industrial real estate owner, an owner of warehouses as embracing technology and embracing sustainability and embracing the kind of like ethical responsibility that comes with that, as you were saying, in helping your tenants and reducing their energy consumption and selecting cleaner energy sources. I mean, that's really inspiring. And I think it represents this, this real change that we've all been living through around how the real estate industry is kind of grappling with its imperative both to adopt new technology, but also to support public health, which the pandemic has, has accentuated, but also now in the climate crisis. I think that there's an increased focus that 
you know, the economy happens indoors globally. And so the energy that's consumed indoors, which is inside buildings, which is inside real estate, ultimately has a huge impact on that. And I think it's just so inspiring to see what Seagrow is doing and, and really how innovative you as a firm have, have become in that regard. So um, David, it's always a pleasure to, to chat with you and get your thoughts. And obviously we at Fifth Wall have loved the working relationship and you know, looking to grow and, and build our presence in Europe um, based off it. Well, thank you very much, Brendan. It's, it's been a pleasure to work with you and I look forward to welcoming you back in, in London when, you, when you're allowed back in, which I uh, hope, hope will be some point in 2021 because it's been too long. I know. I hope so, too. I hope I can get back. Enjoy the, enjoy the country house in the interim. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say country house. This is not Downton Abbey or anything like that. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, um, but thank you. I will. All right. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com dot com.